exciting quarter in life perspective by London speakers. <laughs> Hope you do too. Um, you have uh, an essay due as part of the requirements uh, of this course. It's due on next Friday. And so uh, please uh, take a look at that uh, paper assignment. I handed it out first day. And uh, if you don't have that, it's on the course website. Um, along with the uh, PowerPoint slides, PDF slides of PowerPoint for as many of the speakers as I could get slides from. So uh, not everybody would be able to do that. Uh, the status on the iTunes, the, um, we, we are taking each one of these uh, talks, but I found out that there's a delay on the loading of our talks. Oh, um, so Brad just sent out an email to all LBA and SED students um, to he put all the files on Google Drive, so they should be downloadable now. Um, they're MP4 files. Um, so just check in your inboxes, um, and then I forwarded it to you for any students who aren't LDA or SED. Um, so if you really want to see another one, the, the MP4 files are available. Mm -hmm. okay, great. Today we have um, uh, Greg Sutter and Greg Weber, the two Gregs, uh, from Western Belt. Uh, ecological Services, a company here in Sacramento that does uh, restoration and work and communication banking. We're going to talk all about that today. Um, let me introduce uh, Greg Gray. Greg Sutter uh, is an alumni from uh, UC Davis in the Ecology Graduate School. Uh, he has a degree in landscape architecture from Cornell. And um, Greg Weber is an alumni from our program. I think he just passed So. Uh, please pass to see a turnaround like that. Last, last June, so this year, literally. We're <laughs> this year. Um, so Greg uh, has a degree in landscape architecture and um, I'll, I'll turn it over to Greg and uh, he'll tell you about his project work. So we have until what time, Steve? We have until 1 o'clock. Until 1 o'clock. All right, and this is the clock to look at. Right. Well, uh, I appreciate Steve inviting uh, me, and I put Greg Weber on the spot a little bit because you know, I'm kind of, uh, you know, the old uh, guy, uh, maybe less interesting as you move up in your career and do more and more administration and less and less uh, stuff in the field and helping out, out in the field. Uh, so I put him on the spot like yesterday, so guess what, you're going to help with this talk. So. Uh, uh, kind of a break. Uh, but just to, to tell you a little bit about us, uh, you know, I graduated in, uh, from landscape architecture at Cornell in 1978, so we didn't have any uh, computers. Uh, GIS was, uh, we used tissue paper with uh, push pins. Um, and actually I worked uh, for a planning firm in San Francisco is my first job. And uh, did a lot of really, I learned a lot in the private sector. Um, but that was how we did all of our overlays, was um, with tissue paper and push pins. And so when we wanted to correct something, uh, and our, all our reports were, were hand tight. So things have changed. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about what we do. I'm going to try and finish so that we have plenty of time for questions and, and discussion. 
Um, but I like to start out anytime I'm talking to people, sort of what's our bias? I'm an ecologist uh, and a landscape architect, so that's that's my bias, and I don't know what. How many landscape architects or students in the, that department do we have versus other 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 graduate students in ecology or any other background, or is it all sort of from the landscape architecture perspective? Ecology. Okay. Good. I like to I'd like to have some. Uh, some diversity and, and uh, perspective on uh, discussions. Hopefully we'll have enough time for, for discussion. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about Westervelt Ecological Services. We have a staff of, right now, uh, 20, 28. We actually have three regions. So it's, uh, uh, for you help me put this together, we have a third region. In, uh, we have here in California, we are doing restoration projects uh, in the southeast, so we're based out of Auburn, Alabama. We have projects, tidal marsh and wetland projects in the Panhandle of Florida, uh, the bottomland hardwood forests of Alabama and Mississippi, and we're now working in, the, in Colorado and Nebraska. So that's our third region. Um, Westervelt Ecological Services is a private company, 131 years old. I've been, I have been working there for 131 years. Uh, I'm not quite that old, but I have been working for 10 years. 10 years ago, the company, which has been in land stewardship that whole time, growing trees uh, for lumber, for paper, uh, and for pellets now. We have, we create wood pellets, so the wood that's not used for, for lumber is used to make uh, wood pellets, so it's very efficient. Everything is used, and it's a renewable resource, so we're constant. It's all on private ground. And they decided that conservation was a good complement to the work that it's the business and the family that owns the business is very conservation-oriented. So uh, they invest to make money, uh, and they invest to protect the land. So uh, we manage about a million acres of, of ground um, and think long-term about resources. And we partner. We kind of have a collaborative approach. So we do partner with agencies. We partner with nonprofits uh, and other uh, for-profit companies. Um, what drives? So I head up the uh, sort of director of operations of our Westervelt Ecological Services, which is a business unit of the Westervelt company that we've been doing it for about 10 years, creating wetland mitigation banks and endangered species conservation banks. And I'll tell you a little bit about what that means. Um, but it's driven by, besides our passion for, for conservation, uh, from a business perspective, it's driven by the Federal Clean Water Act, Section 404 and 401. So wetland impacts, the federal law says no net loss of wetlands across the country. Um, there are also state laws, but this is administered mainly by the Corps of Engineers. The US EPA also has a big say in that. But that's what's driving it. We are implementing restoration as mitigation for fill. And I'm going to tell you a lot more about that. We are also providing conservation and mitigation for 
federal and state listed species. So the Federal Endangered Species Act, the state listing of species. So that's what's driving, that's what's ultimately funding our conservation. Now this is an example, um, in, I, when I first got out of graduate school, I worked for a consulting firm in Sacramento uh, for about 15 years. And I worked on this project in Folsom. This was on the outskirts of Folsom at that time. This was in the early 1990s. And this is uh, Humbug Willow Creek. And you can see uh, this is a historic uh, abandoned uh, riverbed of the American River back in the uh, Ice Ages. And uh, now Humbug Willow Creek and it was dredged for gold um, many years ago. And so there was no, no creek bed left, but a, there was uh, an interest in developing it for housing. And so they had to get a permit from the Corps of Engineers because of the fill of some of the wetlands on the project. And so I was a consultant on the project, and at that time, the regulation called for on-site mitigation. In other words, if you were going to get a permit to do that regulation, you had to mitigate. You had to create wetlands to make up for wetlands that were filled. And so I worked to, to go through this process. And um, we worked hard on this as a, as a landscape architect team and, and soil scientists and wetland biologists and and uh, it was a big challenge, took several years to get through it, and we actually, whoops, uh, we, we recreated the creek drainage where there was none, and we set aside and preserved areas with vernal pools, and we restored vernal pools and other seasonal wetlands, and they developed housing on the other areas, and that was the trade-off, and that was what was asked for, that was sort of the present state of the art, was sort of right in the same area, on the same project site, mitigate. Um, avoid as much as you can and mitigate what you have to fill. And we, we designed in a lot of, uh, a lot of open space, uh, you know, trails, and, and I think it helped to improve the quality of the, the living experience in those houses. They sold well, the people liked that. But from an ecological perspective, um, there's some real trade-offs in terms of stress on that. Um, you know, whether it works from a biological perspective. And so stepping back and sort of to, to talk about how, how that's evolved with the regulations, I want to show you that really these kinds of regulations and the core regulation to understand sort of what it is now and what's driving present restoration is that in the uh, 1800s it started with the Rivers and Harbors Act and that's administered by the Corps. In other words, if you're impacting a river uh, like dumping sediment in it to the point where boats can't navigate, you know, the, the Corps started regulating that. And it went on to the, in the 1930s, the Fish and Wildlife Service regulating, you know, you actually can't uh, take all the wildlife so there became regulations, and really in the, the environmental movement in the 1970s, the Clean Water Act came about, and the Endangered Species Act. So that really started driving the present regulations. Um, 
And in fact, the push was to have mitigation then under the Clean Water Act. But in about uh, 2001, the National Academy of Sciences did an evaluation of mitigation and it actually changed sort of the program in 2008. And I think it led to better projects and it actually created this program that's a federal and state supported program now. And really what, and so this wasn't you know, a private company or anything driving this. This was academic world and regulatory world driving it that said, hey, we ought to take a look at um, sort of these postage stamps that we're ending up with in terms of habitat and whether is this working or not. And uh, because this is what was happening, uh, and it was a reaction, uh, a natural reaction to the way the regulations were built and things on site. So um, that was a challenge. Um, and there's, so there was quite a bit of discussion, uh, quite a bit of uh, back and forth within the agencies that then said, look, we've got some problems, technical problems in terms of restoration ecology, um, some legal problems in terms of sort of who owns this wetland that gets left in the middle of the development and who's going to take care of it. And so they started pushing for solutions, uh, which led to um, really the development of mitigation banks. And they, they found that some of the mitigation that was implemented or permits issued, even quite a bit of it, uh, this report said 34%. Um, mitigation, once people got the permit, they never even implemented the mitigation. So, you know, whether it worked or not was one thing, whether it was even implemented. And it really came down to if someone's pulling a permit, and let's say it's Home Depot or it's the county uh, sewer department, their mission is to, you know, provide hardware or to provide wastewater treatment. Their mission is not natural resource management. They're not professionals at natural resource management. It might be a better model to have a focus where professionals trained, like, like you're here, uh, to, to actually implement uh, mitigation. And that's uh, what it, several groups came out saying mitigation banking might be a better way to go including Society of Wetland Scientists. So that's a lot of the background of sort of why do we do what we do. And, and Greg and I sort of fit into this niche that's out there in the world. It's, you know, how do you explain to your parents what you do? I mean, for my dad, that was really hard to do. What, what am I, why am I doing that, you know? And this is why. And I think that the 2008 rule was pretty good. It has 12 basic main sections. I'm not going to go through all 12. You can get this online. Um, but I'll, I'll, a couple of the things that are real important to mention are that define your objective. You know, why are you doing this? And so the purpose of a wetland mitigation bank or a conservation bank is to restore wetlands. If your main purpose is that, then you're having better success. If you're doing it because your main, if your main purpose is having a successful Home Depot, but you got a wetland in the back corner of the parking lot, 
you're less likely to make that a priority. Um, and site selection. I have to say that 80% of habitat restoration success is based on choosing the right site. And when you're doing it on site, you have no choice. You just go to the corners that, you know, the Home Depot doesn't fit on. So if you get to go choose a site for wetland restoration, you have a lot better chance you can look for the right soils and hydrology, et cetera. And then long-term management, these places don't take care of themselves. So site protection and actually uh, having legally binding, and that's all the stuff that uh, at least I didn't get training in <laughs> in school, but that you learn on the job is how important is all the legal stuff that, that's behind it. That's real important. And I'll tell you right now, you'll have an edge in the job market if you get some training in that. So I just, I'm going to walk you through real quickly one project. We have about, uh, I don't know how many active projects right now. I think 18 in the Sacramento office. But this is one that we have going. It's an approved project called the Kasumnas Floodplain Mitigation Bank. And the first thing we said was, well, what's the objective? And uh, we looked at existing uh, we looked at existing studies for the Delta. This is a project that's in the North Delta. And you know, what were the what, what's going on from a conservation perspective, a regional perspective? What's going on there? So, you know, work with all of the conservation uh, efforts that are already going on. And there was a need for um, this type of repairing and fisheries habitat. Um, really salmonid rearing habitat. Uh, so we started saying, well, how can we contribute to that regional conservation objective? So all of our projects, we, we start out with, how do we fit into a regional conservation objective? And then we base our site selection on hydrology and soils and adjacent land uses and Etc. Etc. All the good factors that you want to consider in choosing a site, and these are things that are talked about and have been talked about for years and years. Um, Ian McCard, uh, back in you know, I don't even know if you guys talk about that now, but you know, in 1969. So you know, that was when I was. Uh, that was actually before I got to college. So. Um, but that process um, is, is really all about working with nature and let nature do the work. And if you choose your sites, you will be a big success. Um, but, I, but I will tell you, one of the things I've learned, and you know, I'm kind of the old fart here, um, but I remind Greg, and he's smart, and he, he knows these things, but that nature humbles you constantly. So if you want to be in habitat restoration business, you got to check the ego at the door. Um, you'll keep learning in every project. You'll try and understand, and then it, nature will humble you every single time. But there's a lot of the, the key to success is trying to work with nature, let nature tell you what it wants to do. Um, and 
So, and pay attention to what's going on around you. This is real important. Um, and, and have something that's sustainable. And that, to do that, you need to think about how it's growth going to go on. Of course, this is old now, but just the fact that, you know, choose a site that's not rural when you start and, and urbanized when you finish. That is part of fitting into a regional context. Um, and apply all of the principles of conservation biology. And I, I'm sure you guys are learning all about that. But So back to the, the actual site we chose we looked at, and this is actually 1907, I love this, these old 1907, 1913 maps of the, the geomorphology, but you can see that the Cosumnes River, this is an area where there's already about 40,000 acres of conservation and where we had the right soils and the right hydrology to restore the habitat. And we had uh, general plan and uh, county HCP, uh, draft that I don't know if they ever finish it, but uh, it's been going on for more than 20 years. But you know, we were consistent with that, so we chose a site that fit in to that regional context. And this is the site, about 500 acres, that is at the start of our project was intense ag. Actually, uh, this is the lower half. Uh, this, this, the northern part is lower elevation and was uh, active row crop. And the, and the southern half, higher elevation area, was grape farms, wine grapes. And this is adjacent to the Cosumnes Preserve, but private. And so as a private sector, we could negotiate that some of the public agencies and nonprofits couldn't do, couldn't negotiate. Uh, you know, we're a little more flexible in what we can do, and we're able to purchase this uh, out of that use and into uh, developing a restoration plan to return it to uh, riparian forest to basically add 500 acres back to the floodplain. It was levied off from the floodplain, but it had all the processes in place to be able to restore it. And the idea was uh, get wetland and forested wetland and corridors uh, that would be good for uh, salmonids, young of the year, to be able to move in and, and find food and warmer water and grow and increase their survival rate. And so then we, we graded out channels. Uh, we actually built channels and flooded them and it did not breach the levees and we grew native grass on, on the uh, site to try and stabilize it from a, from you know an erosion perspective and this was part of uh, getting the uh, the permits uh, the process I brought a book along to just talk about that process I mean all the fun stuff is the restoration and getting the permits and the, going through all the legal stuff is you know years of work. I mean, it takes us about three to five years to implement a project to get the implementation. And then, and that's just when it starts. Our project has got a lifespan of an active bank of selling credits of 20 plus years, and then we manage it in perpetuity, which I like to say is actually a very long time. So we have to have a sustainable project. 
anyways, after we built the channels, we breached. We had a big party out there, actually, to celebrate uh, breach. And really, we got, we got Salmonids coming in on their out-migration the very first year. And uh, this is uh, in a, a backwater area, really, off the Delta. So we were very excited uh, to have that happen. Um, we did a simulation, actually. We tried many different options on where to breach, and we wanted to breach on both the Cosumnes and the McCallum. Um, but there was a lot of concern from a regulatory perspective, and we ended up with just one breach. But this, as you saw, the Salmonids found their way up out of the Macomi and up the uh, Cosumnes uh, and into the site anyway, so it worked out. Now, in addition to sort of the ecology, we have a lot of protections whoops, um, on the site for, we, we spent a lot of time buying out the mineral rights so that we could protect it and put a, full, a permanent conservation easement on it. Um, we eliminated the utility easements across the site. There's a lot of actual sort of uh, devil in the details of these sites that you have to pay attention to because, um, you know, this is a picture of surface mining, but actually this area is real natural gas area, and that's really what was a threat is, uh, and in California, mineral rights trump fee title. So uh, you can come in and put a, a mineral pad on top of a wetland, uh, on top of a conservation easement. And so we had to actually spend a lot of time, and that's one of the biggest constraints in California is, is those um, mineral rights. But we went through a lot of effort to legally secure the property in perpetuity, and that that is one of the benefits of a mitigation bank um, over just sort of a restoration project, and it can be significant amount of money. Um, another big benefit is the permanent endowment. So we fund what's like a trust account. Think of it like a trust account that's tied to a landscape, where we fund up front a large pot of money and that generates interest. It's invested in very sort of secure funds, and it generates interest, and that interest then funds the long-term management in perpetuity. So it's a non-wasting account. And that's not held by us. That's held by a third uh, party. <laughs> we work with uh, uh, a nonprofit uh, to hold those funds, and there's actually qualified groups for doing that that are very you know, specialized in that. NIFWIF is one of the ones, national organizations funded by Congress uh, that we like to use. But there's others that you can use. And we are the long-term manager, and you have to define who the long-term manager is. Um, so that's what we do. So I'm going to talk now about another uh, couple of projects that are targeted, that the Cosumnes, the one I just talked about, was driven by just wetland regulation by the federal government. Some projects are, we do are driven by specific species. So we're thinking about 
sort of habitat and wetlands because the Corps of Engineers drives that. And they have their own definition of the EPA of what wetlands are and what sort of functional values they, they, they value higher than others. Um, and there's a lot of debate about that. But we work with, we work quite a bit with uh, a, a state and federal listed species uh, here in California, Night uh, Garter Snake. I'm going to walk you through, or I was going to walk you through an example. I guess it's not working, but it's a, I will just tell you, we had a video of just sort of the GIS analysis that we did uh, for a landscape scale uh, location, which was the, the Calusa Basin, basically the west side of the Sacramento River, all of the historic uh, basin soils that were historic range of the giant garter snake. And we started out looking at that landscape and then we went through a whole GIS analysis of, well, what are the site selection factors? And a lot of that's ecological and physical processes, hydrology, soils, topography, and then some of it is legal, okay? What easements are already out there? What, what are the other constraints? And then put those together, and actually when you do all that, you come up with, it narrows it down pretty far. And, what, and then also what fits into that regional conservation uh, perspective. And we then selected a site. So I'm sorry I don't have the video, but uh, maybe you can watch it on the next, um, or on the uh, iTunes. Uh, maybe we can get it to work for that for you. Um, but it's really just a two minutes of showing some GIS maps. So then we do a lot of technical analysis, and I just have some slides here. You know, hydrology drive everything. You can take as much hydrology training as you can get if you want to work in this field. Um, we do a lot of permitting, so take as much training as you can in the regulatory process, because it can overwhelm you. I showed you the, the report. I mean, this is all technical work done for regulatory process so that you can implement habitat restoration. It, that always amazes me, but it's harder to build a wetland than to build a house. Um, and it really is. And then we develop conceptual designs. For, this is a, just a concept for the Cosonus project that I showed you. And you can see that originally we were talking about multiple breaches and and that changed quite a bit uh, from what we ended up with. And, and then we go to grading plans, and Greg's going to talk to you a little, a little bit. We don't do it the way I used to do it. You know, we actually put in the urn, those kind of ancient tools. But uh, we're a little better at it now. And then we we do manage a lot of construction. We actually uh, move a lot of dirt as a business, um, and we're pretty practical in that sense. Uh, and this is uh, I this is the result of the GIS video that uh, I was hoping to show you. But this is a project in the Calusa Basin that we ended up with. So. I had a video that, that led to this site, and this is the restoration. This is the first phase, so you can see that there's the habitat. It used to look like this. This is rice ground. Um, this is 
fed, uh, state wildlife refuge and documented giant gutter snake present there. And this is habitat that's uh, in the, developed in the first phase, and this is the next phase. So you can see sort of the results of the GIS analysis. And uh, we've already documented the presence of uh, giant gutter snake on the site. So um, it's been a success so far. Our credits are released over a, like a 10-year period. We have to meet certain biological uh, requirements, and then a credit is released, and we're allowed to mitigate for a project. We, we mitigated on this, uh, for instance, for the new water delivery to the Davis Woodland Water Delivery, uh, new diversion out of the Sacramento River, or I guess the change of, uh, from the Conway Ranch to the city of Davis and Woodland. And this is part of the mitigation for that project. And we then go into long-term stewardship, so monitoring. Uh, this is a totally different project, but a picture of uh, tiger salamander um, on a vernal pool property we have in Solano County. But um, we do a lot of monitoring and a lot of adaptive adjustment uh, on our projects. And that's really just the beginning of land stewardship. So it's a long-term conservation commitment. And part of that is not so sexy, but taking care of ground is protecting it. I mean, we have to keep people from trespassing, keep people from starting meth labs, keep people from, you know, converting our native grass to a pot uh, uh, plantation. Um, those are things that we do uh, that, you know, actually take quite a bit of time and energy. And we do a lot of prescribed birds. We would like to do more of that in California, but uh, it's hard to get the air quality permits, but we do in the southeast. Uh, it's actually part of our management is prescribed bird that really helps a lot of the species, like some of the rare pitcher plants and stuff there. One of the criticisms I've heard of mitigation banks are that uh, they are, are focused on a single species, but I, I'm here to tell you that, yeah, we do focus on those because that's what the, the law of it, uh, is driving, like salmonids, but those properties are protecting and, and supporting a lot of other species, like in this case, sandhill cranes at the same property that was created because of, of salmonids. Uh, giant garter snake property, um, we have good giant garter snakes on all our properties, but we have thousands of ibis and other birds nesting there. It really is multi-species. We have one that's a vernal pool property that we also have a lot of bird nows on that's targeted, but we have other species like the badger there, and it's a potential kit fox, etc. So it really is multi-benefit, multi-species, and we're trying as ecologists to get the most out of a site we can. So then I'm taking too much time, but I'll introduce a project that Greg's going to talk about a little bit, but in the San Joaquin Valley, this is historic wetland range of the San Joaquin Valley that you can see. Uh, it's a little 
the green there is the historic wetlands of the San Joaquin Valley, which a lot of it's been converted to agriculture. And these are the giant garter snake occurrences that have been mapped in any of the last several years. Um, and this is the project site that we've chosen. So we, we honed in on, on where we found them, and we picked a site that was in the grasslands area next to a state refuge. Where, this is the conservation easement ground in that area. If you've never been to the grasslands, it's a, a world-renowned uh, wetland area in California. You should go down there. Uh, the amount of bird uh, activity is, is amazing. Um, this is the site. It's in ag. Uh, and again, next to a state refuge, it sort of fits into that conservation region. Really, we were asked actually by the federal and state uh, agencies, could we find a project for John Garsnick in the San Joaquin Valley because it drastically needed habitat. Um, it was historically wetlands and converted to ag. Um, and near one of the last remaining uh, populations of giant garter snake. And we were also creating seasonal wetlands there, and these are some of our analog sites, which are sort of in the spring flower condition, some of the vernal pool-like sort of alkali wetland conditions. So we, we use analog sites a lot for defining our design criteria. So Greg can talk to you a little bit. He worked very hard on this over the summer. Uh, thanks. Um, definitely glad on entry level because we do get to do basically the funnest stuff with all of these projects. Um, so amazingly, I spent about half my time in the office and half my time in the field, which was kind of astounding. I was really kind of blown away by all the cool stuff we get to do. And a lot of it is what you expect. Um, graphic support, permitting documents and construction sets, but also um, just a lot of interesting um, diagram creation, just diving into a lot of the data and creating documents based on that. Um, and we're using grasslands just to kind of show a little bit of like, insight into a project and then what um, associates will do on the field. And uh, this is a great example of recon where you can see um, this is the state wildlife refuge that has the known population of garter snakes we're looking to attract. And uh, this line up here represents a survey taken on the ground by our associates marching through the marsh um, and taking elevations every 20 feet or so. And um, below it is sort of what we're trying to do with our design to try and use this data to create a, a more successful design. Um, and then, of course, we run into concept writing, which actually runs all the way through to the moment we're submitting our permits. Um, so this kind of could go anywhere in this, this string of um, uh, bullet points. Um, this is the existing grade survey. This is extremely important. One of our um, associates actually drove a quad through the field taking survey data with um, survey gear to create a model of the surface. Because in construction, grading plans. We don't draw our lines like Greg mentioned. We actually project them based on known coordinates on the ground. So um, I encourage all of you to get AutoCAD Civil 3D. I know you guys don't teach it yet, but um, it's free for you guys right now. That program is really cool because you're, you're not drawing any kind of lines. You're not calculating anything. 
it's projecting the elevations you need based on, say, a slope calculation for 11 or something like that. So it's, it's kind of blows me away. You don't actually draw anything. You use the computer to calculate where you need to be with specific whiteness. Um, so we actually do grading plans, a lot of that. Goofy picture, construction, it's huge, but um, it's also a lot of fun. We're out in the field for maybe 10 weeks, uh, watching contractors, um, networking with subcontractors, checking grade on all of these critical elevations we need to uh, establish a successful site. Um, right now I'm modeling Fuller, so that's where a is gonna go. <laughs> it's part of our recirculation grade system for this project, which I hope I get a minute to talk about because it's really, really cool. Um, this is really, this is kind of makes me proud looking at this. Um, it looks like a drawing, but these are all individual survey points taken in the field of our completed project. So after the project is finished, you survey all of the lines of the habitat, and you deliver our, our report of our construction process based on hard data. So none of this is drawn in the computer. It's all drawn by survey points. Um, so that's pretty cool. That's like two weeks worth of work. Driving the quad through the field, which not really work, right? <laughs> and then this, um, this is really cool because this is our as-built drawing based on the data, and it looks very similar to the concept I showed you earlier. This is just a quick arc map image of all of that data, just kind of printed out really fast to see what we would have. Um, but we got really close, so I'm, I'm pretty proud about that. And then the final thing that our associates get to do, which is kind of the coolest, is the, the flyover. Um, so you can see, uh, I got the photo bomb this, that little dot right there is me, um, and then our, my supervisor got to fly over the site and just see it from the air, it's pretty incredible. Um, and then just to, if you guys have any questions, you know, throw them out there, but um, this is all giant garter snake habitat here. This is 404 wetlands, which is a little bit different um, than the giant garter snake. And this is a really cool design, this is kind of one of the best things about it. Um, this is an agricultural drainage system, and about five miles of agricultural land flows um, south to north through our property. And we're able to capture some of that and redirect it around to this, which is the high point of our system, and feed that water back into our wetlands to clean the water and get free water in the drought, which was pretty incredible. Um, so all of this water right here was, was drainage water that's free. And then it all can go back to this point, the low point, hydrology, hydrology speaking, on the site. And it can be recircul or recirculated back. So we can kind of keep flowing water through the site. And a lot of that came up with you know, a lot of the drought concerns and the, the lack of water. Um, so we were able to implement this design feature, which I thought was just genius. Um, and then just a little bit about how this criteria and how we go about formulating a, um, a plan. Before you even get to the drawing board, this is, um, really quickly, this is a tidal marsh project um, down in the delta that's targeting salmon species and um, just general wetlands. Before you even get there, of course, peer-reviewed research. Um, all of our associates have like this working knowledge of different areas of the expertise. And we have um, a drive in the office that's just full of great research. So everyone's like a little librarian. You can go ask them for like, their special area and get really cool um, articles related to our sites. Um, there are agency-adopted guidelines we use. This is a design guideline um, for coastal weapons that was made by uh, the Army Corps of Engineers. 
and I just can't mention that in this form because I think we did a really good job and they gave something that approaches that. This document is really cool. You can't really see it from here. I have a hard copy if anyone wants to see it afterwards, but um, these are basically a physiology, uh, can't remember the word, it's basically um, elevations in the marsh and related vegetation that occurs at those, ele uh, those elevations. One of our biologists read a report that was basically um, done in the marsh that we're working in and then adapted what he saw on our site to relate to that um, project or that um, report. So all of these elevations represent our marsh and the type of vegetation you see along an elevation. And this is actually a prediction for the sea level rise on the site. So this is what is a good example of what the biologists will do in our um, office. They'll take a lot of data and then they'll try and condense a 60-page report into one graph that actually helps inform design quite a bit, which will lead to sort of the next, uh, next jump, which is what does that mean for our site? What are all those elevations with different plant species? What does that even mean? And this diagram is just a really quick uh, demonstration of a habitat burn, which is something we're trying to implement on the site to um, create a more gentle slope on this project levy. It'll just create a lot more options for habitat and endangered species. And this is actually a working document. This is actually pretty old. Um, this area here is upland refugia for um, an endangered mouse. Um, so there's just so much stuff that goes into you know, our designs and the form of our designs and you know, what we're trying to accomplish. And then eventually you arrive at a concept plan. And this is the site itself, and, um, just showing a channel that we're going to introduce into our site that will uh, hopefully provide great, great habitat. I think that's my last slide. Yeah. So just in, in closing, that there, recently, in the last few weeks, uh, the president has issued a memorandum on uh, support of the private sector uh, and, and basically saying that the federal agencies will work with the private sector to implement uh, conservation uh, projects. And one of the benefits of that, I mean, we as a mitigation bank in the private sector, we work with uh, HCPs uh, and, and other programs, uh, and I think they complement each other, and they're, uh, they're not taking up any taxpayer dollars. Our projects are fully funded by the private sector, and that's one of the real benefits is you're getting advanced mitigation, you're getting funded by the private sector uh, habitat restoration, and we can come in and, and sometimes get things done faster, like we're doing multiple projects in the Solano, the Sacramento County area, while those HCPs have been going on for 20 plus years and have implemented, they're still grinding through projects. This is a stream restoration project in, in Alabama. We're implementing a lot of stream restoration as well as wetland. Um, uh, and uh, we're, we're contributing to conservation in that way. So the private sector getting involved. Uh, it's one tool in the toolbox. It doesn't solve everything. It's not the solution for everything, but it's uh, uh, it's a, and it's a, a way for landscape architects to work. So, uh, banking was in 2005. It, uh, when I started it in banking, it was in uh, 1995. Uh, I worked on one of the first banks west of the Mississippi. By 2005, there were several, um, but now. 
there's a lot. This is a, a significant direction. There are banks, this uh, all over. Uh, so, so it's a driving force for conservation. And that's, that. there's a lot of private money going into conservation in this way. So um, conservation banking, not so much. In California, it's pretty active. Uh, the rest of the states, Florida's not doing too bad, Texas, not bad. The rest of the states have a lot of catching up to do. Oh, where do you get your private funding from? We are lucky in that, uh, um, unlike a lot of banks that that will reach out to try and find, you know, venture capital. Um, we are 100% funded by uh, John Warner and his family. Westervelt is owned by, uh, is a family-owned business, uh, fifth generation, and uh, it's their family money, uh, and they fund our products. What's the difference between mitigation and conservation banks? And, and I showed the slides. And uh, in our terminology, a mitigation bank is the common thing for uh, mitigation or replacement wetlands driven by the Section 404 of the Clean Water Act. So wetland regulation is called mitigation bank. A conservation bank is mitigation, they don't like to use the word, it's compensation um, for endangered species uh, compensation. So a conservation bank is driven by the Endangered Species Act, and a lot of that is preservation-oriented versus restoration-oriented. Yeah. Well, the Clean Water Act is a much uh, stronger uh, stick that the Corps of Engineers has than the Endangered Species Act, which the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has. And that's, I mean, in California, the Endangered Species Act is regulated pretty strongly, and there's a lot of listed species. So it's a big factor in regulating. Oh, we have internships. Gregory <laughs> uh, came to us through an internship. Uh, we have uh, an internship team. We have some flyers on internships. Um, so if you're interested uh, for the summer, summer job, if they're paid internships, uh, we're interested in getting a couple of people every year. And we also have internships in our southeast office. So if you're interested in, um, in the southeast, um, where a wetland is really wet, um, <laughs> full of alligators. <laughs> Thanks very much, Greg. Don't forget about the class evaluations. They're on, on the web. Please do that.